Please take your Bible and turn to the book of John. We'll be in John 16. Uh, John 16. And we'll get going here in a moment. I don't know if it's this way uh, at your house, but at my house, uh, pretty much the moment that we get home from Thanksgiving or the moment that we wrap up Thanksgiving, there is a person in my house that will say, James, will you go up to the attic and get all the Christmas stuff? Does that happen at your house also? Some of you, you know what I'm talking about? This year I was really good. It took her 18 years, but she finally trained me. She didn't even have to ask. I just went and did it. It was wonderful, glorious. That's how you get points, boys. That's how you do it. I'm just telling you. But what will also happen is we will have all this buildup and all of this Christmas music and all of these things, and then we will have Christmas, and as soon as it's over, the same thing happens. Now it's, hey, James, why don't you get all that stuff and take it back upstairs? Is that it? Is it... it And once Christmas is over, like when it starts getting cold, you know, hey man, I've got Christmas to look forward to. Then after Christmas is over, it's just cold. That's all you got. It's nothing fun anymore. And so, man, wouldn't it be nice if we could take the joy and the hope and the peace that we experience leading up to Christmas and if we could have that stuff after Christmas is over? Wouldn't that be nice? I want to tell you that you can, and I want to show it to you from this text today. We're in John chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 23. So let's begin reading there. In that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. So the first thing I want you to note is this, divine access brings Christmas peace. Divine access brings Christmas peace. Uh, notice Jesus says on that day, what is that day? Well, this is in the context of what we talked about last week. Last week he was talking about a day that was to come in the life of the disciples. If you go back to chapter 16 and verse 16, it says there, in a little while you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while you will see me. And he says that when you will see me, I'm going to return. I'm going to come back. Now, you can interpret that as applying to a couple of different things. The first, he was the next day going to go to the cross and die, be buried, be in the tomb for three days. And then on Sunday, he was going to be raised from the dead and they were going to see him. He was going to come back and they were going to see him. You also could go the other extreme, which would say, uh, not only was he dead, buried, raised from the dead, but then he ascended into heaven and he left them again. And then he's going to come back one day at the second coming. He's going to come back and we'll see him again. That's the other extreme that you could take here. But there's one in the middle that I think is where we need to live. The one in the middle is this. He died, was buried, was raised on the third day. He came back for a few weeks, visited with the disciples. He then ascended into heaven, is at the right hand of God. But on Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, the Bible says that the disciples were in the upper room. They were praying, and then fire fell on them. It looked like a bunch of tongues on fire fell on them. And that was the filling and the giving of of the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus said that he was going to dwell with them and live with them. And the way that he does that is he lives with them through the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Now, for the early disciples, they were not filled with the Spirit until Pentecost. But for you and me, when we give our heart and life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes and He indwells us and He lives in our life. So if you are a born-again believer in Christ, you possess the Holy Spirit of God in your life. That is the essence of being on that day. Once you have the Spirit, here's what's going to happen. Now, notice in this text, he says, on that day... You will not ask me anything. Can you imagine being Jesus and living with these guys and ladies for three years and traveling around? How many questions that you would get asked on a daily basis? I've been at home last couple of days with my with my family, and I'm going to be at home with them even more as we hit the holiday time and Christmas time. And there is one word that if you're taking a tally of all the words that are said in my house, there is one word that is said more than any other word in my house. Anybody know what it is? Mom. That's the word. Mom. I got five kids. Every one of them needs something from mom. Mom this, mom that, mom this, mom that. Uh, They do come to me and they ask really one question. The only question they ask me is, Dad, where's mom? That's that's the question that I get asked. Where's mom? And and I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes mom will will go to the bathroom. I don't think she's really using the bathroom. I think she just didn't want to hear her name getting called over and over again. Y'all feeling my pain? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, imagine mom getting tired of all the questions being asked, but now it's the Son of God incarnate, Jesus himself, walking on this earth. Imagine if you're one of his disciples. Don't you have some questions to ask him? Like, for instance, uh, Jesus, uh, why mosquitoes? Right? That's a good one. We're going to ask that question. But, but there's this question, and he's saying, on that day, you're not going to ask me any questions anymore. You don't got to ask me questions. Well, I still have questions. Who, who do I ask? Well, look at what it says. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now, we are not asking Jesus. While it's fine to pray to Jesus, the Bible, they pray to Jesus in the Bible as well. But here he's saying, on that day when you receive the Holy Spirit, you have direct and divine access to God the Father. You can pray to him and call to him. This does not mean that you're praying through Jesus. Look in verse 26. We're going to come to it in a minute. 1626. He repeats this. He says, on that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. The Bible does say that Jesus intercedes for us. He prays for us. But he is not talking about this here. This is not, I'm going to pray to Jesus, and then through Jesus, he's then going to pray to God the Father. No, no. This is a direct divine access to God the Father, and you and I have it filled with the Spirit. When we pray, we can pray straight to the creator of all the universe, and we pray to him. Notice it says, if you pray it in my name, he will give you the idea of his name is that it's within the context of his reputation. It's in the context of his will. And we are praying in obedience to his will and direction for our life. This is not just saying in Jesus' name tacked on the end of a prayer. It's not a rubber stamp. Well, if I just say that, that means everything is answered. No, whenever we pray, it ought to be in Jesus' name, whether we say that out loud or not. But the idea is that we no longer need to go through anybody. We can go straight to him. You know, in the Old Testament, 
you had to go through the priest in order to get to God. In the Old Testament, you, they would bring their sacrifice and, and uh, they would bring it to uh, Jerusalem, to the temple. And uh, there were different courts there, different layers of courts. There was a court of the Gentiles so that people who were born Gentiles and, and weren't born Jewish, they, they would go there to worship. And then you had the, the court of the Jews, and so Jews got in there. And then, then it got to where the women couldn't go in. And then it was just the priests, and, and then it was the high priest. And in order, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement and would go and make a sacrifice uh, for the entire nation, for really the entire world to forgive their sins. And only one, one could get in there. So in order to get into the presence of God in that day, you had to go through the, the priests in order to get there. But this says that when we come to Him and when we pray, notice it says, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. We do not have to go through someone else to get to God the Father. On that day when Jesus was crucified... When he died, there were a number of things that took place. The last song we sang, it talked about the dead coming to life. There were dead people that were in the tombs around Jerusalem that came back to life when Jesus died. Uh, there was earthquake and the sun quit shining. I mean, there was a number of things that took place. But one of the most significant things that took place was in the Holy of Holies, between uh, the holy place where the priests could go and the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year, there was a curtain that was 30 feet tall. Three stories tall. This curtain was a real thick curtain. It was designed to separate people from God. And when Jesus died, the Bible says that that curtain ripped, not from bottom to top as if a man had ripped it, but from top to bottom as if God had ripped it. And what was the symbolism of that? The symbolism of that was there is now through Jesus no longer a barrier or a separation between us and God the Father. We have direct access to God. Why is that important? Well, there are some today that will say, no, you don't have direct access to God. Uh, you need to go through someone. You need to go through a priest. You need to pray and pray to Mary, and then Mary will take it to Jesus. Uh, the, or pray to a lesser saint. Pray to the saints and let the saint take it to the Lord. That is a very heavy theology. And I will tell you that based on the strength of God's Word and what He just said, you don't have to go through anybody to get to the Father. You go straight to Him. And when we go to Him in prayer and He answers us in prayer, that results in our joy being complete. My friends, the joy of Christmas, the peace of Christmas, the hope of Christmas, all of that is wrapped up in our prayer life. And one of the reasons that many of you do not experience the peace beyond December 25th and the joy beyond that day and the hope beyond that day is because you're not spending time in prayer with the Creator of all the world. So, secondly, not only divine access... But secondly, divine attention brings Christmas peace. Divine attention. Verse 25, I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
Now, the Bible just said that you're going to call and you will receive. And how exactly are you going to receive it? Well, you'll receive it from the Lord. He's talking about this. He says, I've spoken to you. These are the answers that Jesus was giving. And I've spoken to you in figurative language, in metaphor, in a language that you somewhat have to decode. Now... When he's saying, I'm speaking to you in this type of language, do you think that Jesus was being unclear in what he was communicating? No. Jesus was being very clear. The issue with this type of language was not on Jesus' side being clear. It was on the disciples' side in that they were not able to understand and decode what Jesus was trying to say. The issue here is not with Jesus' communication. It was with their receiving of that communication. Now, it says on that day, I'm not going to talk to you anymore in code, but I'm going to talk to you plainly. What is different about that day than the one in which he was talking to them? Well, on that day, they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And listen to what the Bible says about the Spirit's work in our life. John chapter 16, verse 12 through 13. Jesus says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. And so what you have here is the answer and the message that God is going to give comes through the Holy Spirit. And on that day, it will still be the same language being communicated, but you will have the ability to decode it and discern and know what he's saying. Now, why would he give us and grant us that ability? Well, look back in John 16 again. Look there in verse 27. For the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, when he says the Father loves you, he uses uh, a different Greek word for love than the one we're accustomed to. There are two main words for love that the Bible uses. There are more in Greek, but two the Bible uses. One is agape, one is phileo. So agape is a willful love. Agape means that you make a willful decision to elevate the object of your love above yourself. You set yourself aside to meet the needs of the object of your love. Now, God, agape loved the world to such a degree that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He looked at the world and said, they have a need. I'm setting myself aside to meet that need. That's your agape love. We are called to love God and to love one another in that way. But you can agape love someone and not like them at the same time. Praise God. That's how many of you love your children most of the time. You can still love them in that way, willfully loving them in that way, but not really like somebody. We are told to love all types of people that we may not like. Phileo, however, is not this willful love. Phileo here is a compassionate type of love. It is a love because you like somebody. It is a love because your heart goes out to that person. It is a love that is connected to the emotions and connecting, not just to the mind and willfully doing something, but something that you want to do because you care for someone. And the Bible, listen to me, listen to what I'm telling you. The Bible here says, for the Father himself loves you. Notice in the text it says the Father himself, that is intended to be emphatic. 
And the you here is intended to talk about, yes, you plural, but you individually. Guys, the Father does not love you because he has to. The Father loves you because he wants to. He actually likes you. And he is moved with compassion for you so that when you pray, he was going to answer. That doesn't make you feel a little bit better about yourself after you walked? He, he, he loves you. Now notice it says, because you have loved me and have, and have believed that I came from the Father. Now this does not mean that he loves you because you first loved him. In fact, the Bible says the opposite of that. It says that we love him because he first loved us. So this is not that he loves you because you've earned that love. But here's what it's saying. The object of this type of love, the whole world is not loved this way by God. The whole world is not loved with this type of love by Almighty God. I know that's shocking, but it's, it's not. It's different. But he's loving those who belong to Jesus. And those who belong to Jesus are the ones who have loved Jesus and have placed their faith in him. And so when you place your faith in Jesus, you become an object of this type of love from God. When I was in uh, India, I was on a mission trip in India five or six years ago. And we went to New Delhi and we were touring uh, the city. And they took us to a Hindu temple. How many of you have been to a Hindu temple before? Very few of you. Maybe a couple of hands up. All right. So, good. I can tell you whatever I want to tell you, and you're going to think it's great. In this Hindu temple, a little bit of background on the Hindu religion, they have millions of gods, just millions of them. And in the temple, you walk in, and there's a a room that kind of is L-shaped, kind of goes around like this. And on the left side, there's about a, a half wall, about this high, with a ledge on the wall, and they've got bowls on the ledge, okay? Then behind that wall, they have on pedestals idols. These idols are like dolls, big dolls that are maybe about this big, and they're sitting on those pedestals, and they represent the the God, whatever that idol God is. And they have above the bowl a bell. And what you do is you would put your offering in the bowl, and then you would ring the bell in front of that idol, the bell of that God. Because that particular God has lots of idols all over India, and he may be at another idol somewhere else. And so when you ring that bell, that God will then come to this idol to take a a look at the offering that you have made and to give you a blessing. So that's what they're doing by... You know, ringing, ringing those bells. You know what the Bible tells me? We do not have to ring God's bell. The Bible says that you are the apple of his eye. He numbers the hair on your head. He knows you intimately. He cares for you intimately. He wants to show up in your life intimately. He wants to speak to you clearly in an intimate way. He wants you to know what he is thinking. He wants you to know what that answer is. And the way that he does that is he takes the Holy Spirit of God that is in your heart and he takes the Word of God that is in his Bible and he puts those together and he will show up in your life in that time of need. You do not have to get his attention. You have it already the third thing I want to show you is this 
divine assistance brings Christmas peace. Divine assistance brings Christmas peace. Verse 28, I come from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now, he has said this multiple times already. He has already said it. And every time that he says this, do you know what the disciples do? Uh, they don't get it, right? It just, they just, they just don't get it. He says it again in verse 28. I come to the Father, come to the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And the disciples say, look, finally, now you're speaking plainly. Now we get it. You're not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. We got it now. Good job, Jesus. Finally, you you explained it in a way that we get. Finally, you did it. Now, Jesus just said, I'm leaving, coming back. When I come back, and I believe in the context of the Holy Spirit, when I come back, then I will no longer speak in figurative language. Then you will understand it. So the disciples saying, we got it. Good job. We got it. That is disingenuous at best. They still had no clue what Jesus was talking about. Now, the words they said are great. The words they said are exactly right. But they have no clue as to what's going on. You ever try to explain something to somebody and they're just not getting it? And you have to explain it again and they're not getting it again? And you have to explain it again and they still don't get it? And at some point, they get tired of you explaining it to them and so they just tell you, yeah, I got it. Yeah, you're doing great. I got it now. And they still have no idea what you're talking about? That's what the disciples just did. Because they realized that Jesus had told them that multiple times and they still didn't get it. And they realized Jesus is going to think that we're ignoramuses. He's going to think that we are just the most unintelligent people on the planet. That we have. So we've, we're just going to save face. Say, yeah, we got it. We got it. Now notice Jesus' response. Look at what he says. In verse 31, Jesus responded to them, Do you now believe? I don't think that's how he said it. Let me, let me change that a little bit. Just, oh, so now you get it. Oh, so now you know what you're talking about. So now you got it all together. Remember, the fact that they didn't understand it had nothing to do with Jesus communicating. It had everything to do with their inability. So when they were saying, oh, we got it now, you're no longer speaking in a figurative language, what they're saying is, we got it now. We know what's going on. We got it all together. And notice what Jesus says next. Indeed, an hour is coming and has come. When each of you who have it all put together, each of you who are getting everything that I'm throwing down, each of you will be scattered to his own home. When does this happen? Well, they're about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and while they're there, Judas Iscariot and a group of soldiers from the Sanhedrin come into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. They arrest Jesus, and uh, there's, a, there's more to the story. There's an ear cut off and swords. It's really fun. And, and then they take Jesus away. So out of his 12 disciples, he has already lost Judas Iscariot. He's got 11 remaining. Nine of them run away, and we don't hear from him again for a while, at that moment when he gets arrested. Two of them end up at Caiaphas's house, at the high priest's house, and they go, and they're in the courtyard, and one of them denies Christ three times before the rooster crows. 
In fact, in that story, if you read that story in the book of Mark, uh, it says that there was a young man there who ran away from the garden without any clothes on. You didn't know that? You ain't been reading your Bible. You ought to go read that. Uh, Some believe that that unnamed young man was actually the author of the book of Mark, John Mark, whose family lived in Jerusalem and were early believers. They believe that was him signing his, uh, his gospel. Anyways, that, that was something extra, whatever. Uh, but the bottom line was, he was gone. They all left. And notice what he says, y'all all left, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. Because the Father is with me. If you go to Israel with us, you'll get to go to this place, Caiaphas' house. Uh, There are some places in Israel and the Holy Land where they think that something may have happened there. There are other places where they know something happened there. And Caiaphas' house is one where they know. It is Caiaphas' house. He was the high priest in the times of Jesus. They would have taken him there. They have excavated that space. They have excavated a courtyard outside of it. Uh, a church has been built on top. It's the church of the rooster, because that's where the rooster crowed. But underneath the church, underneath the house, near the courtyard, they have excavated a dungeon. This dungeon underneath the house originally would have been just a hole in the ground, and it would have been carved out of the stone on the side of the hill. They would take people in this hole, about a man-sized hole, put a ladder down it. You'd go down in the bottom. They would pull the ladder out. You're in there by yourself. No lights, nobody else, just hard stone floor, hard stone walls, and nothing else. And that, that's where they would put people. Now, the Bible does not say that Jesus was put in that dungeon. However, if they treated Jesus as a prisoner the way they would have treated other prisoners that came to Caiaphas' house, then they would have put him in that hole. I, I, I think that he went in there. And so imagine this. Jesus, the Son of God, abandoned by everybody, now he is put in a hole with no lights, no windows, just stone wall, stone floor, all by himself. But he wasn't. Because even in that pit, God was with him. Now, if you go with me to Israel next time, and I don't know when that's going to happen, they need to take care of some you know, issues first. But if you go again, someone, I don't know who did, but they have excavated that to such a way that they have built stairs that go down into that dungeon. And uh, we will go down in that dungeon and gather and we'll sing Jesus paid it all in the pit uh, where Jesus was by himself. And I tell you, I don't think any of us can ever get that alone. I hope that you can never get there. I I hope you always have a church family that will be right there with you. I hope you have a Sunday school class that will be right there with you. I I hope you will never get to that point. But, But if you ever get to a point to where you are as alone on this planet as Jesus was, in that pit, in that hole, I want you to remember, He is there with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I'll tell you, I have great courage if somebody else is with me, don't you? And the same is true with him. 
my friends, you have his assistance. Notice what it says in verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have what? Peace. You will have suffering in this world. It's going to get tough. But in the midst of that suffering, you'll have access to me. In the midst of that suffering, you will have my attention. In the midst of that suffering, you will have my assistance. In the midst of that suffering, you can have peace. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. The victory is already won. Don't we get excited for December 25th and for all that it means? As a Christian, December 26th should be no different than December 25th. Because all of the truths, all of the peace, and all of the joy that comes with Jesus being born, we have every day because Jesus lives in us. Now, there are some in here who have given their life to Christ genuinely, but they do not live with that practical peace in their life. How can that be? The Bible talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. And as we've looked, that access, that access is great. But if you don't use that access, it does nothing for you. The attention is great. But if you don't listen to that, it does nothing for you. The assistance is great to be there. But if you don't ever lean in on that assistance, it does nothing for you. You see, the reason that we lack peace in the Christian life is because we are not taking advantage of what we already possess. Those who aren't having peace in your life, let me ask you, how is your prayer life? How is your personal Bible study and Bible engagement? Have you been walking in obedience to the Lord and leaning in on Him? For many of you, A lack of peace in your life is the light on the dashboard going off that says you need to fix something. And so, my friends, you may need to fix something today. You may need to confess sin. You may need to start praying. You may need to start reading God's Word. But you you need to deal with that lack of peace today. But there are others in this room that as I've been talking, I might as well be talking a foreign language. Because you have no idea what I'm talking about when I'm talking about peace in the midst of any situation. You have no clue. And the reason you have no clue is because you do not have the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And the reason you don't have the Holy Spirit of God in your life is because you have never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. But I want to let you know you can do that today. The Bible says that we're all sinners that we're all separated from God. It's because of that separation that we do not have the peace for which we look. And it's because of that separation, the lack of God's presence in our life. And so God looked down from heaven. He saw us separated from God. He saw that we were headed to hell. And he said, I've got to do something about it. And he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to go die on the cross for our sins, to take away that sin issue. And when he died on the cross, was raised in the third day, he removed that sin and he made it possible for us to be reconciled with God. 
But it's something that he gives as a gift. It cannot be earned. It can't be worked for. It's something that must be received. You have to receive that. And the way that you receive that is by acknowledging that you're a sinner, that you're in trouble, by believing by faith in Jesus Christ, and by surrendering your life to his lordship. The trigger mechanism is prayer. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you were to humble yourself right where you sit and call out to the heart of God from your heart and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you're God's son, that you died on the cross for me, that you were raised on the third day. I am turning from my sin and I am trusting you with my life. If you call out on him in that way, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Would you bow your heads and hearts with me? It may be during this time of prayer, many of you who have given your life to Christ, but you've got that dashboard light of of lack of peace in your life, it may be now is the time to repent and confess and to pray. But if you've never given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you in the quietness of your heart, right where you sit, to call out on Him in prayer. And pray. I just walk through it. There's nothing in the words themselves. It's the heart behind it. But in that prayer, say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I turn from my sin and I give my life to you. Will you come into my life and save me? And he'll save me. Right where you sit, do business with him. He has spoken his word to your heart. Now he wants you to respond to it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're willing to provide all of this for us to have peace every day of our life. Lord, I pray for those who are responding to the message that you've put on their heart. I pray for those that need to give their life to Christ that they would do it. I pray for those who need peace that they'll find it. Lord, I pray that we would honor you as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.